All right. Well, hello and welcome to episode six. Is it six now of uh, the I'm Thinking of Watching Things podcast? Um, this week, we're thinking of watching The Trial of the Chicago 7, Netflix slash Aaron Sorkin's newest. Um, but before we get into that, uh, we have a guest today, Julia Gibson, um, brilliant legal thinker and film person extraordinaire. She can do it all. Um, to start us off, we're gonna. I, I want to ask you guys: uh, What's your favorite courtroom drama, or or your favorite Aaron Sorkin project? You can pick either or. Brooke, let's start with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Put you on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't prepared. Uh, just like the trial. Um, okay. <laughs> let's see. Uh, let's see. Okay. I just googled courtroom dramas, and then <laughs> one that uh, really stuck out to me was uh, Aaron Brockovich, um, which I have no other ties to it except that I remember my mom really liking this movie, and it's one that'll, like, just be constantly on, like, every channel on the TV if you're just, like, looking for something to watch. It's just always there for you. Um, so I remember watching it, no idea what it's about, except I think, like, contaminated water. Uh, and there's like a sex scene and I started watching it when I was like eight or something and I <laughs> those are the two moments that really uh, stick out to me so I guess I'll say that um, and I watched Molly's game like in a hotel room once um, and I only saw like the first half of it but that was good and I'll just throw in there that I read uh, 12 Angry Men for an English class in high school um and i remember reading it <laughs> so <laughs> that is that is it that's me i thought i would have more time to prepare but yeah okay. those are my those are my favorite courtroom <laughs> things that i remember viewing there you go um a aaron brockovich is that is that what it was yeah um, i think it's julia it's a Soderbergh roberts movie right yeah, it's yeah a, julia yeah. roberts uh she's like looking like julia roberts <laughs> curly hair i think she she won the oscar for that didn't she i, I have no idea she, I, she I did think she might have mind, at least yeah. <laughs> my i my dad's not a movie person at all but i have like a vivid memory of like coming downstairs uh when it was like past my bedtime and just to get water or something and he was like engrossed in that movie I was like, Dad, what are you watching? He was like, this movie is amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. he's just, I was like, okay. Still haven't it's seen our, it. But... It's our parents' favorite <laughs> courtroom drama. There you go. Uh, Arjun, how about you? What's your favorite courtroom or Sorkin? Yeah, I don't know if this is, like, sacrilegious to say this since we're a movie podcast, but my favorite courtroom drama is uh, American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson, which, like, I, I haven't watched any of the American Crime Story uh, series since, but I love that so much, partly because I have somewhat of an obsession with uh, everything surrounding the O.J. trial, just, like, you know, capturing the attention of, like, everybody around the world in 1994 in a way, like, it seems almost hard to do for that significant of a span of time, like, a week of every everybody just caring about what this movie star slash athlete like might have been doing during this week and just like consuming the entire world in that way. And just the way that like, similarly to this movie that we're talking about today, actually, like the actors really just embodied these historical figures, uh, even in a sometimes uh, piece of art that like didn't totally work for me, I think was awesome. And like those performances are always going to stick out in my head. But 
I'd also, I'm not the biggest uh, Sorkin fan, but Steve Jobs, I think, uh, might have been a little bit underappreciated this past decade. And I'd like to just give a little shout out to that because uh, Seth Rogen and Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet, I think, just absolutely murdered that script. And I rewatched that like way more than I expected to after I first watched it like five years ago. So a little uh, twofer there for me. Uh, I'm Arjun. <laughs> yeah, I can't really think of courtroom dramas in terms of Sorkin. I'll be basic and say Social Network is my favorite I've seen, but I haven't seen that many. Um, but I watched all of Molly's Game on a plane, so similar to Brooke, not in like the 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 best venue, perhaps, for appreciating a film. Um, but I'm really enjoying it and thinking Jessica Chastain's great. Um, and it was very engrossing in the way Sorkin kind of gets inside a character's head and you're there with them. Um, so yeah, those two are are strong. Hmm. Nice. Um, I'm going to go with the B movie um, <laughs> because this is going to be the second week in a row this podcast talks about the B movie. Um, and I I haven't watched it sober since I was eight. But so I don't I don't quite remember a ton of it, but I do remember that there was some courtroom drama and I remember Patrick Warburton being there. And that's always important. And I think that I, I was about to whip out my Patrick Warburton impression. I'm going to save it. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think now's the time. Uh, Can but, we get the Ray Liotta impression at least? Like we we two weeks uh, in a row now of. Uh... <laughs> uh, I wish, uh, I wish I could get a get a Ray Liotta impression going. Um, but yeah, wow, twice Ray Liotta. We're just. We're a new podcast. This well, is the I, I do you think cast. like we are a new podcast. I think we might need to rebrand because it's like six straight weeks now of us doing Netflix movies. I, I think True. I think we might just need to be a Netflix podcast. Although maybe it's just like Netflix is the only distribution now that doesn't like completely <laughs> have to upend itself. So here we but are. <laughs> how would we talk <laughs> about how would we talk about Sofia Coppola next week? That's a good point. That, that's a very good point. <laughs> we start the rebrand after that. After that. We... <laughs> we'll switch to an Apple TV Plus podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. So much content to talk about there. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Greyhound? That was a movie. <laughs> that was a movie. Um, Boy State, that's Apple TV Plus, right? Yeah, I need to see that. I've, I've been waiting to use my Apple TV Plus trial for next <laughs> week for Sofia Coppola. I heard Ted Lasso is really good too, but I, I guess in TV, not really something we care about here on this podcast. <laughs> I, I would review TV. I just watched Haunting of Hill House, and I feel like that is a rich text that could be talked about in many podcasts. Um, anyways, we, <laughs> we, we are getting sidetracked. Um, uh, the Trial of the Chicago 7, brand new Netflix film from Aaron Sorkin. Um, we're going to start it out how we always do, which is, um, I, I, I guess we don't need to put a spoiler tag because these are events that happened in real life. <laughs> uh, but uh, just kind of on the on the surface, uh, surface level, did you like it? Did you not? Did you enjoy your time? Um, how did you guys feel about Trial of the Chicago 7? I'd say for me, like, it's a nicely shot, well put together movie. I thought all the performances were like all around really strong. Um, for me with this movie, my biggest tension is between like politically what it's trying to do and then like the actual craftsmanship slash enjoyment that I got out of it. Because I think it's historical inaccuracies and like to the spirit of what that trial was about and what like the 60s were about as a whole 
Um, and like, obviously it was trying to speak to now, but I don't think it spoke to now in as powerful a way as I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't lie, like it was a good two hours. Um, I was pretty captivated. Um, I thought it's clever in Sorkin's, you know, rapid fire kind of way. Um, so yeah, that's my surface level take. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I, I don't think it is quite this bad, but like a few times during watching that movie, the thought like, is this the Bohemian Rhapsody of political dramas ran through my head a couple times <laughs> where I'm thinking like, you know, the spirit of what these people are trying to capture, I don't think really thematically matched the themes and the motifs of the movie. But like you're saying at the same time, like just kind of watching Sacha Baron Cohen and Yaya Abdul-Mateen like dive into these roles and give these kind of like magnetic performances that are just going to be totally unforgettable was just so much fun that I had to kind of like push that out of my head at certain parts of it. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so I had a public school uh, history education, <laughs> which uh, no offense to uh, Mr. Bronson and Mrs. Stropko, lovely people, probably. Think they're listening? Uh, Name-dropping them. Ah. Name-dropping. Yeah, Mrs. Strocko is also my neighbor from back home. Uh, So she knows where I live in case I give a bad opinion of this. Um, But I don't think I had ever heard of this or the, like, Port Huron statement or the students for, like, a democratic society or whatever um, until, like, I took a history class at William & Mary. with another name drop, but this is a, a beautiful one to Jerry Watkins, who, yep, I was in class with Julia, but <laughs> I'm not a history major, but I think I took like five, four or five classes with uh, Professor Watkins just because he was amazing. Um, and that was like the first time I had heard of any of this. Uh, so this movie for me was like, and because I was not a history major, everything that I kind of learned from that portion of things was just kind of like vague memories of like what these various things were. Um, so I had to do like a lot of Googling <laughs> throughout this to like, I don't know, I, I'm not one to really know what the historical inaccuracies were. Um, but given that, I think this movie for me was kind of like, I was just like going along having a decent time until like I really enjoyed like the last like half hour of this film for some reason and I don't know I really liked the ending it got me I I was like oh this is beautiful and then like the the score came up the sound and I was like oh this is great um so yeah I had a good time um but yeah also totally agree with the other things especially about the like what is this trying to say in terms of like current political themes and everything and that it might have like fallen a little short in that aspect. I I was nervous coming into this because I mean I think Sorkin Sorkin writes dialogue super well. That's not a hidden fact. Everybody everybody who's who can who's watched one of his movies know it's rapid fire. It's usually really witty and clever and um, it's just pleasing to the ear, literally, to to listen to. So I figured that it'd be entertaining and I think it is. It is an entertaining film and I had a good time with it. Um, but I had to really, about halfway through, I was like, okay, I'm going to let myself enjoy this because I was really pushing against Sorkin's sort of neoliberal, like, hey, guys, as long as we all get along, uh, every the good guys will always win. As long as we fight the good fight, uh, the American system always works, which just 
does not, I think, fit with 2020. Um, didn't fit with 1968 either. Uh, and so I found myself really, I was pushing against it a lot. And then about halfway through, I was just like, okay, I need to stop watching this as a sort of document of history because it's not. And instead, just like, I don't know, given to this fantasy world uh, where like the good guys, like the good guys do in the, in a way when like obviously the trial is thrown out um, and we have this like grand ending that Brooke was just talking about, which I'll, I'll agree with you, Brooke. I, I was just like, I let myself enjoy it. Like it, <laughs> I, I'm a cynical person most of the time and there is easily a world where I watch that and just boo at it. But uh, the, like just the idea of like, the mean cranky old judge being like no and (laughs) and and like even joseph gordon levitt's character which god will get to but (laughs) standing up and being like respect for the fallen like you know like there's (laughs) there is there was like something that was was just like okay i'm gonna let myself like feel this the warmth of this moment because 2020 has not let me feel very warm uh and so yeah i I, I go back and forth on my on my feelings on it, um, and I think I, yeah I, I don't know if I'll if I've come to a conclusion on like I like this I didn't like right. this it's somewhere right in the middle. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and like what you're saying reminds me a lot of like the reactions people had to Green Book in a sense, where you know it was criticized for being too much of like a kumbaya we can all come together and end racism by like bringing love into the world and not really like one sort of muting and dampening more radical ideas and two like oversimplifying maybe the way that we can fix them and. and I don't have like a problem necessarily with those stories being told, but when you're co-opting these historical <laughs> biographical stories that actually happened and don't really match the thematics of your movie, I think it becomes a little bit more problematic. And not to say that I hated this movie as much as I hated Green Book, but <laughs> I, I think it is, you know, if you're going to make that the message of your story, like choose different stories to tell, I think would be <laughs> the problem I have more than anything with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's very much like what we talked a lot, a lot about in any of uh, Jerry Watkins's class is like kind of a difference between um, either like wanting to have like, you know, like radical social change that is very much needed and structural change versus like trying to work within the system. Um, and I think we saw like a little that placed onto, I guess, I guess, particularly like um abby hoffman's character like at the end there where he's like um i actually really love (laughs) the structure of america um there are just like a few bad people (laughs) which is like a few bad apples is like a trigger phrase uh for everything (laughs) currently so i think that's like kind of a big a big issue there and a good a good summary of one of the big issues that was a breaking yeah. point for me when he said and he's like <laughs> these american institutions are great like noted <laughs> anarcho-communist <Yeah. laughs> i was just well, uh, I, I saw that screen cap on Twitter before I watched the movie. So I came in so, so cynical about like ready to just absolutely hate this, which like might be why I'm a little bit like not quite as like, because I don't think most of the movie really matched like some of what happened in the last 20 minutes where it was really like 
oh, like, that's how you're going to write this? <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, that is supposed to be, like, a powerful ending that really, I think, makes the mark in a lot of ways, Listen, for me at least. I still liked it. <laughs> Maybe I just really liked the music or something. I don't know. I'm just, I'm one for, like, a good crowd, a hip-hip hooray scene. They do it in Barbie Nutcracker. They do it here. Hey, now, that is, that is a great movie. I don't want to hear anything about yes. that. <laughs> no, no, no. It gets me every time. I'm, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> what, what is the deal, though, like, with these historical biopics, which are, like, they do this thing where it's, like, freeze frame, and then text comes yeah. over at the end? Like, do you guys hate that as much as I do? Because, like, what are we doing here? Like... <laughs> I, the ending hurt me like this triumphant music comes up as they're reading the names and I'm like okay but did we in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s and 2010s ever resolve any of this mm. no we're we're still with, we have come back to the 60s point of like cultural crisis where we're trying to understand how we've let our system fall apart so badly and do injustice to so many people and it's just like but we read the names we remember <laughs> them and, like, and also the text on screen is like uh this guy became a stockbroker and stopped being involved this guy uh killed him got hit by a car <laughs> like, yeah. oh, why is this music so happy <laughs> Well, you, you guys have, like, a better historical perspective than I think Caleb and I do based on what we've talked about so far. So, like, I, I have a question, I guess. Like, wasn't the Nixon era sort of, like, the end of counterculture in a way? So, like, you know, celebrating this as, like, a sort of triumph seems a little bit counterintuitive to me when it's, like, it's been 40 years and only now are we finally beginning to, like, maybe reclaim some of the counterculture spirit of the 60s and, like, playing it off as, like, some sort of grand triumph at the end just feels a little bit wrong to me. Yeah, I mean, the way historians view it is kind of like the 70s and then the 80s with Reagan especially, we have a backlash of conservatism, right? We have all this radical change in the 60s, all this momentum, and then people get freaked out after a couple of big changes happen, and we go back. Um, I think Thomas Hayden, you know, Eddie Redmayne's character has a quote like, uh, something about like the, the spirit of the 60s fading into the common sense of the 70s, and then 80s is conservative backlash. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of weird to have it as a triumph when the actual lasting impact of the 60s, while important, didn't fix the issues we have today. Like, it, that was a weird, like, dissonance to me the whole time of, like, this is, like, yeah, I'm, like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it just gets back to what Caleb said about, like, just allowing the fantasy of like this one moment I guess yeah I mean the only like triumph that I could see it is like I guess like a triumph over that like specific judge or whatever and not like maintaining the like decorum and like political I don't know like correctness of a courtroom or whatever but still like we end it's it's a weird a weird thing like happened with the sound there at the end too like we have the score that I'm such a fan of and then it like pauses for the text on the screen and then it like comes back a little bit and then it isolates like just the sound of the gavel there so I don't know what that what was happening there but I thought that was like an interesting turn um but yeah, yeah, and then they like go back. I rewatched that last scene um, right after I finished it. So I was like, oh, I need to go back and see that again. Um, but yeah, then they end again with like the very last thing that's like actually 
some part of the sound of the film is like the the chanting or whatever like of the whole world is watching which it actually reminded me of um another thing that professor Watkins, man i'm gonna have to send him this because i'm really just <laughs> really hyping him up here uh made us watch um the like act up documentary for for aids in um you know the 80s and stuff and it kind of had a similar vibe of that except i feel like that documentary was way more powerful and impactful for like because it was also a documentary and not actors playing the people that were like vital to these like cultural political movements and stuff but yeah using that like crowd chanting thing um it's a weird a weird turn there so speaking of performances uh i feel like that's almost the best way to talk about this movie is diving into some of these performances um and people and the characters behind them um and i want to ask you guys about frank Lang- langella langella L- langella he's italian the judge he's the place langella uh i think his performance was great and guys was he just the most punchable like asshole that you've ever seen on screen um i think one of the one of the positives in terms of um in terms of how sorkin deals with like the system i thought was like using the judge if you use him as a metaphor for what the system is and represents and how um he's going he can rule over anybody and overrule over anybody and can stomp on anybody and will be unfair to people based on what he wants and what he likes. And there was a part of me that while watching it, like his performance is great and just just the worst person of all time. Um, and that is one place where for, for a while there, I was like, okay, Sorkin's actually showing us that this is a sham trial and there are political trials and that it's not that like it's it's not that this like one judge is necessarily just the worst and most evil person and that's why this trial is going poorly it's that like no literally this whole court system can be manipulated and uh it is a little broken what did you guys think of his performance and did you also read the judge as sort of a metaphor for all of the courts or or do you think Sorkin was sort of just being like look at this one guy like well I don't know I mean I think if he is making that argument of like he represents systemic change I would I would say like mm, maybe not especially with the with the like Abby Hoffman thing already presented where it was kind of trying to say that the systems in place are good and it's the bad people mm. there. And if that we line. like read into the, if we read into the, the, the like text on screen or whatever, where it like specifically wants to mention that like 78% of the other judges already in the Chicago, whatever mm. system yeah. ruled him as, as like an unqualified person that like very much is an argument for like this one dude is not only like, bad but he's also incompetent and it was also like a function of his age which to me also is implying like not just like the the geriatric psychiatry like comment or whatever not just a function of his age and that like his systems and faculties are failing but also that with him dying out is going to be like a dying out of a generation that Mm. would be shitty in this instance which I think is definitely not true. So I don't know if I'm buying that. I'm, that's a I'm good saying... point. No, that's that's a really good point. I, I hadn't yeah. 
I had I forgot about that title card. That's just like yeah. that. That literally is Sorkin being like, ah, Chris White. <laughs> if only they had a fair judge, they yeah. would have. Things could have been different. I I also think I think Schultz is um, Levitt's character. Like he is portrayed as uh, like he's conflicted about oh. doing right. It's a struggle, and so I think it's like he is part of the system that is like slightly resisting going with the injustice of the system not enough to not do it of course um but enough to feel a little guilty about it um and so i feel like if he was truly like trying to undermine the system as a whole that he that character wouldn't be as sympathetic and mm. makes the judge a better scapegoat he also like the whole scene where bobby seal is restrained and mm. gagged he kind of whitewash that a little bit because he did that for three days to Bobby Seale um, in the actual historical events and they also had him in chains I think so it's just like that kind of gets wrapped up in like a couple minutes after it happens and it's still super disturbing mm. um, but I'm, I was sort of surprised once I read that, that Sorkin didn't go as far with it as it actually did because that if he wants to paint the judge as this evil sadistic person go for it you know Hmm. three days jesus christ how yeah yeah i I think i I agree with what both of you guys are saying i mean i think like sorkin i'm not sure i love the way especially those two characters were written joseph gordon levitt and langella's character but i I agree with you caleb though like that performance by langella i'd never seen him in anything before and i think he's mostly a stage actor from what i understand and i think that really plays into this where he's in the same room like in the same spot the entire time but still is able to be like so physically commanding and just every time even when he's not physically on screen his presence is like so felt i felt like and man like he plays that evil so so well i don't know if that's like his typecast or anything because like i think he did play dracula on stage once so i mean it's not really the same thing but maybe like kind of uh, in the same vein but i i agree with what all you guys are saying that's really astute yeah can we can we talk about joseph gordon levitt's performance <laughs> as mitt romney i guess like <laughs> As as this, he's this, okay. First of all, he's a fake prosecutor, so he's not the real prosecutor, um, right, Julia? Am I right on that? Um, like like Joseph, he's not like he's like a a fake version of the real prosecutor. Like, I mean, is, is it like an amalgam? Yeah, like an amalgam. Like, okay. I think he was an actual guy. Oh, really? Um, my impression was that uh, so it's like Schultz and then the like AG deputy guy that's like at the table behind him. I think is like Ferran or something. Um, it was, it looked like in, I read some of the transcripts of the stuff because I was really curious about it. And it looks like they were much more of a tag team. Like that guy was way more involved with doing the prosecuting. And it looks like he made him much more sympathetic, Schultz, yeah. than he mm. was. Yeah. Okay. Regardless of whether or not he's he's real or not. Um, yeah, this like, the scene that we get at the beginning um sets you up to think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is going to have some sort of big arc or will be like some crucial part. Um, And I guess he is that like tipping point at the end when it's like, uh, okay, like even the prosecutor respects the dead in Vietnam. (laughs) Like even, yeah. um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has an, acted in much recently right he's been sort of he's been off the map um and i think he puts in a decent performance here but the character just pisses me off um and i don't think he's supposed to i think 
that like my conservative parents are supposed to watch him and be like that that's me like <laughs> versus trump like i i feel that like i just he's just doing his job he's a good hard-working man who like knows this is unfair but he has to you know do what he's told and that's a good trait to have i guess um it it does ring as just just such like a slap in the face to yeah any radical thought or or any like it's yeah he's he's like a good guy i mean he's the villain but he's like the like understandable villain and to your point like it's it's questionable even more so when you consider i I could be wrong about this but i I believe his last like major role was in the uh oliver stone edward snowden movie (laughs) which is also like a very like you know a muted version of a radical story where he plays like a similar type of character where I think like it's pushed in exactly just toward the center a little bit and it's it's a little bit weird I don't know I I completely agree with what you're saying like his character bothered the hell out of me Mm. I think it's weird we kind of like he's the first character like that scene is so early on that we have a ton of investment with like just him and just a character moment that's not part of the like Welcome to the 60s montage, um, which I did enjoy. Um, and because, like, if this is a, inherently supposed to be a radical story about people who want great social change, why do you start with the person in the system who is vaguely discontent with it? Like, why don't we start more solidly with Hayden or with Hoffman, or not Hoffman, um, like, at any of them, like, but not him? <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, like, <clears throat> all of his, like, like, in that early scene, like, everything that he's doing to, like, kind of subtly try to say, like, I don't want this case or whatever, this should not be happening, it doesn't even seem like it's about his, you know, like, personal opinions or political opinions or anything, but, like, how he thinks that it will be viewed by, like, the American population at large, so just, like, so much about just, like, the appearances and not at all about like what is actually happening and we get just that so weird scene where it shows like his daughters yeah and what is supposed to be like <laughs> yeah. a humanizing moment we're like oh my god he even lets them eat like peanuts on the street <laughs> mom doesn't let him do that look at him um and it, it's so weird and like i guess we could relate to oh my gosh what's the one character that's not Sasha Baron Cohen, the other Jer- guy. Jeremy Strong's Ru- character. Ruben. Yeah, yeah, Ru- yeah, yeah. We're supposed to like maybe there's a moment where we relate to him where he's like, I don't think you're a good guy because you're doing this, but like the film is so much more cueing us to to be on the Hoffman train where we're like, I see right. you as a family man, and I know you're just doing your best. So. Yeah, and like the two audience sort of surrogates, to your point, are Sasha Baron Cohen and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, where like we spend the most time around them, both of them have like the biggest arcs, I feel like, and then to have them sort of have a more sympathetic moment in the middle of the film, where they're like, I understand you, it just, that was such a weird scene, like that's the most like sort of bad Sorkin, I could feel like, kind of came out in this, where it's like, him indulging in just like the worst of his sort of tendencies yeah uh, that's a really good point bringing that up Brooke I I I was very frustrated by that scene (laughs) I think it's a part of like Sorkin just loves to he loves to show us jagged edges and then round them out and that's like his resolving of dramatic tension and I think that I mean that goes for both the left and the right he's like he won't show anything as explicitly good or explicitly evil 
he doesn't take a stand other than like what is like good and fair and so like the fact that this prosecutor stands at the end is good because like he has a heart for those you know who are who are who have passed in vietnam but he's like he also paints him as fair he's this prosecutor who's just doing his job mm-hmm. and and that that the same is applied to like hayden and the rest of the chicago seven which is like they might have these radical ideas but they're just going like that doesn't matter their radical ideas don't matter what matters is that they want what's best for america and they're being treated unfairly and that's bad and like that's that's the extent i feel like of what any message i can eke out of this film yeah I, I do think there were some pretty interesting performances in a good way, though. And yeah, I remember hearing somebody say a couple of years ago about American Hustle, which I think is a pretty similar movie in a lot of ways, that like it's a Rorschach test with regards to the performances where like what you think was the best performance or what was your favorite performance in the movie like says so much about you. And I, I was just curious for you guys, like what your favorite performances was out of this ensemble. And I think like ensembles like this where there are so many huge name actors with like big big roles like you know changing their hair and you know gaining weight and shit like that I think it's so interesting to see like what performance people latch onto because like you know at least based on what I've seen on Twitter people like love certain performances hate certain performances and I just think it's so fascinating especially with this movie where I had a lot of mixed feelings and I mean we talked a little bit about Eddie Redmayne I mean Eddie Redmayne before I'm just curious to hear what your guys' Mm -hmm. thoughts are (laughs) Um, I loved Jeremy Strong doing his best Tommy Chong uh, impression. <laughs> he's just, hey, man, like, let's, let's not riot. Like, he's, he, uh, and his, like, I, I, I had a lot of fun watching that, that character. And I haven't seen Succession, and I know that he's, he's kind of the opposite in Succession, right? Isn't he, like, a sad boy? Yeah. Um, I thought he like, was rich entitled prick basically (laughs) (laughs) he does play the opposite here uh and i i so i think that's the performance i latched on to and which did mean when i got that title card at the end that he became a stockbroker that actually like hit me in the gut like it (laughs) it was like the fact that in i'm in real life i'm assuming sorkin didn't make up that title card uh he lost his will to be this progressive or this radical rather and he joined wall street itself like that oh god that gave me chills in the worst way like i it hit me hard um but i i agree on the red main point actually i i don't like not that i don't like any red main but him doing this like weird american accent i feel like normally i don't notice when british ac- actors do american accents but this one I noticed, it just didn't work for me. He, he's oh. just, he, he's, he's forever condemned to be the, the angry soft boy. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not with it personally, except in Les Mis. He can have Les yeah, Mis. I'll come <laughs> out and say it. I do not like Eddie Redmayne. Just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think for me, Sasha Baron Conan, I thought was fantastic. Um, really embodied Hoffman um, in a way that was awesome. Also, um, oh my gosh, Abdul Mateen as Bobby mm, Seale was mm. fantastic. I was sort of disappointed he didn't have like more of a role. His case does get severed from the main case, like that happened in real life. 
but man every time he was doing his thing on screen I was just like you are fabulous like please keep acting <laughs> I want more of you um but yeah I like Jeremy Strong too I didn't hate Eddie Redmayne I don't know I thought <laughs> it was fine like that's kind of Tom Tom Hayden I I didn't like the way Tom Hayden's character was portrayed like I thought they kind of white liberalized his kind of pretty socialist activism mm-hmm. um so that annoyed me more than Eddie Redmayne's actual embodiment of what that was. The accent was weird, but I didn't think it was bad necessarily. I was just very aware of it because I know what Eddie Redmayne sounds like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Aww. I, okay. <laughs> I like Eddie Redmayne. <laughs> um, I don't know. He just, I just want him to like tuck me into bed at night and just whoa, whoa, whoa. like in a non-sexual way like <laughs> pg podcast <laughs> just just tuck me into bed like whisper some things just like comfort me um fantastic beast you know horrible movie he's a cutie though <laughs> Les Mis. he's doing that i recently rewatched Les Mis. After only having seen it once, um, when it like first came out, I don't know why I was under the impression uh, when it first came out and I went to the theater to see it that it was a comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was that was Wait, incorrect. And I, also, <laughs> and I also didn't know that it was a musical, uh, which I'm not the biggest musical fan. So I was just I was too thrown uh, <laughs> when first watching it to appreciate it. The second time around, though, I was like, oh, yes, I was singing all the songs. Um, and Eddie Redmayne was a huge part of that experience for me. So I'm not going to bash him in this instance. But yeah, I think Sasha Baron Cohen was my favorite. And just, I, I don't know. I don't know how close this is to the actual trial, but I just love his little talk back like instances and his little stand-up um, his stand-up comedian parts where I thought that was like a really interesting way to convey like whatever like the other side of the story um where he's like wearing an American flag t-shirt and talking to like a group of college students I thought that was an interesting like I liked those parts of the film so yeah Mm -hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen like his character did all sorts of disruptions and was like giving his two cents every evening (laughs) yeah he, I think cool. he does carry the film in a lot of ways in a in a bloated cast where there's some amazing performances. He really does stand out, and um, it does it does like sort of feel like one of those like going for the Oscar performances, like very purposefully. But which sometimes can turn me off to a performance. <laughs> but um, no, I agree. He was pretty electric, and. Uh, you never really quite knew what his character was going to say or do, but it was always interesting. And um, I agree. Real quick on Les Mis, uh, <laughs> there was a period of time b- between 2012 and 2014-ish, maybe 2015, uh, where if you asked me what my favorite movie was, I would have said Les Miserables. Um, <laughs> I watched that film maybe like six times in the theater. I was obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed with it um i'm listening to the soundtrack all the time i for i for my music honor society inductions 
I played a duet with my girlfriend at the time, which was like Les Mis and all the duets in it. And we would like go back and forth on it. Um, <laughs> Incredible. Okay. Yeah, that was Maybe just- you shouldn't say that out loud, Caleb. <laughs> no, this is Maybe my confession. Yeah, just you memory. This is my confession. Um, I recently rewatched it as well, like maybe a week or two ago. Still great. And I'm going to stand on this. You know, I'm going to stand by this opinion. Uh, it was just a beacon of hope to me. Uh, all those characters have so much love and hope. And uh, that's something I needed to watch. I hadn't seen the movie in like five, six. No, I guess not six. That doesn't make sense. Four or five years. And uh, it was great to rewatch it. Amazing comfort watch to me. That's that's my two cents on Les Mis. Um, <laughs> had to get it off my chest. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen like the Les Mis from a couple years ago. The, I guess the only like Tom Hooper musical adaptation I've seen is the masterpiece Cats. So I'll, oh. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> like see how Eddie Redmayne. Well, I I didn't hate Eddie Redmayne in this movie. I thought I thought he was all right, but I did hate him in uh, the Theory of Everything and the Danish Girl. <laughs> so like. You know, it's, like, it's just, there's a lot of bad uh, going around in my head, but... Uh, you just hate him <laughs> as a person, <laughs> just personally. Yeah, but a quick shout out to Mark Rylance, who, who was my favorite performance in this movie. I, I thought he was mm. so good, so electric. And also, uh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., I think, who was the star of Waves last year and the star of Loose, who mm. played Fred Hampton in, in very limited time I think gave a really 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 good performance I think he's going to be a star and uh yeah like like you said Caleb I think there's going to be a lot of Oscars that come out of this movie for better or worse and uh it'll be interesting to see how that progresses because I think there's going to be a lot of takes come February <laughs> that Bobby Seale performance and that Fred Hampton performance really make me want to see a Black Panther film not by Aaron Sorkin dear god do not give it to Aaron Sorkin <laughs> But uh, yeah, those pro- I uh, those performances were also up there for me. Um, Yaya uh, Yaya Abdul Mateen um, the second. He is just an electric performer. Loved him in Black Mirror. Loved him in other things that I can't remember Us. right now. Yes. Watchmen. Yes, yes, yes. As uh, as I guess I won't spoil which character. No spoilers. He plays. No spoilers. <laughs> Um, but he's he's great in that as well. Um, that's this really is a performance, and I guess it makes a performance carried per, uh, film. And I guess that makes sense because it's it's a Sorkin so dialogue heavy film. But I did want to ask you guys, how did the riot scenes play for you? The the actual protest scenes, um, because the choices made in this film, it's obviously called the Trial of the Chicago Seven, so it's focused on the trial. Um, but we do get those inner cuts, flashbacks of of what went down in the actual action of the event. Um, did those play well for you guys? Um, did it play, or did it play not well, I guess? <laughs> uh, it played like stuff that I uh, have, have seen on Twitter <laughs> of recent mm. <laughs> protests. I was like, ah, oh, this, this site is familiar in that scene. I'm trying to think, what are like the, the longest ones that we get it's the one where get he, the hill. taking the hill taking mm-hmm. the hill and he then gets, on the bridge i would say oh yeah. yes yeah that last one i guess the the taking the hill scene was was an interesting one because they <laughs> kind of like try to paint like they kind of single in on like the woman with the american flag or whatever 
as kind of like an individual person for us to focus on within this like chaotic riot scene. Um, and then there's like an attempted rape that happens by some frat bros. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And dudes just following them. Yeah. They walked a long time a between block? the first time and second time that we saw them. It feels mm-hmm. nitpicky, but I was just like, what are you three doing? <laughs> yeah, yes. they're like frat bros, too. Like, like these frat bros have nothing better to do with their Saturday other than to follow. They're so offended that, that this American flag is being flown by, a, like, a girl who uh, doesn't believe in the Vietnam War. I don't know. That... Mm-hmm. That definitely did ring like um, a really like square and a round hole like sort of moment where he wanted to to pull out to just like extract emotional attachment or horror or or some we to put like an emotional personal connection to the horrific action going on around them. And it was like, dude, I'm freaked out by the police officer clubbing the protester. Mm-hmm. I don't need, like, this just rings weird to, like, turn attention away from the police, which is what mm-hmm. the villain should be in this moment. I don't know. It, it, it just felt distracting. I'm with you, Julie. I don't think it's nitpicky. To okay, good. Yeah, I thought it was weird. And I, like, looked up to see if it was based in historical reality. Uh, no, which mm-hmm. makes because it doesn't ring true in the slightest but yeah, yeah I kind of wanted more focus on the police violence like yes. throughout the whole movie like I actually think the protest scenes they're shown brutally beaten protesters which as Brooke said feels very familiar to what we've been seeing um recently um so that was fine but I feel like more in the trial more emphasis should have been <laughs> that's what was fine terrible but like accurate uh, but in the trial itself, I thought more emphasis should be on, like, this was a police riot, and, like, it was the state enacting violence on these protesters, and not, and I don't, from the transcripts, like, I was trying to figure out how prominent that narrative was by the defense, mm-hmm. I think more so than in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of, like, undercover cops giving us little bits of what happened, and less mm-hmm. of them being like, but your people did this to the peaceful protesters. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. Michael Keaton tells us this, that <laughs> they found that the cops um, did that, which made me think like, okay, like if you found that the cops caused these riots, why didn't you go and prosecute them, Michael Keaton's character? Like, I don't, and I don't know the historical relevance behind that. I don't know if <laughs> they did or there was an attempt or whether it was just like, ah, those darn police, like. Yeah, it feels a lot like every couple of weeks these days we get like some intelligence agency coming out and saying like white supremacy is the number one cause of violence in this country and then you just don't hear anything about it for the next couple of weeks until another study comes out from another intelligence group. Yeah, that's, it's it all feels, it feels very poignant, especially considering, you know, most of the sort of national discussion around this has been reemerging this summer and obviously this movie was made long before that. But like you guys are saying, you know, it feels like with a dull edge. <laughs> Yeah, I almost wanted it to end with, like, I don't know why, if they would have done this or if it was done already, but, like, with, like, just footage of the police protests, like, paralleling what we saw earlier in the movie, but it's, like, 2020, and just end after that, like. Have you seen, um. A little less triumphant. (laughs) Black Klansman? Yeah, Yeah. that's exactly what I was going to say. That's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, That movie is so powerful at the end to me, because Spike Lee does, 
like exactly what you said, which mm-hmm. is like, let, here's the Nazi, neo-Nazi rally in Charlottesville. And here's like horrific video footage from that. Like this, that, I have some qualms with how Spike Lee treats police in that, in that movie. But, but the thing that is so poignant about that is that he's like, you see these issues of the clan and like church or I mean, excuse me, crosses burning and everything. That's not over. This is not historical fiction that we're looking back on. And I think Sorkin has elements of that sprinkled here and there, but he, it's not enough to, to be relevant to 2020. It's, it's trying to be like, look at this thing that happened in 1968 that was like horrible, but we moved past it. And we like, you know, the long arm of history bends toward justice or whatever the hell that quote is. Mm -hmm. It's so (laughs) funny to me though. It was the only Sorkin movie that I've seen that really actually feels appropriately prescient, like appropriately dealing with the issues that it's talking about in a modern way is the social network, which is like, a boomer talking about the internet and like mm-hmm. somehow i mean maybe it really is just fincher pulling that one together but i love the script for that movie and like for some reason that just feels way more you know in tune with the times than these things that he actually lived through <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me but uh yeah i mean just like thinking about that movie versus this like it, it doesn't really make sense except for stylistically that they were written by the same person <laughs> Well, I I have done a lot of reading on on the social network. um, And apparently there were a lot of just like preachy speeches about like, what's right and wrong in terms of how you treat your friends and and the internet and stuff like that. And Fincher like was just cut nipped at in the bud and was like, that's not what this is about. Which like, it's like, oh, man, if we had David Fincher directing the trial of the Chicago seven, who like yeah (laughs) i feel like like a lot of the preachy stuff in the social network gets like given to coked out justin timberlake which somehow just like feels kind of you know like it makes a little bit of sense i don't know like when he's yelling about like we're gonna live on the internet someday it's like (laughs) yeah that that seems right (laughs) yeah i i just wish the history like something should be historically relevant because it like when you're looking at the present, you should be like, yes, like this happened and it's still happening in different forms and new ways, but it's the, it's the same experience and that's why it resonates. And it clearly is meant to frame that as this is the past, we are better now, um, which I just thought was such a weird move to make, particularly like if there was any editing going on like up to this summer, I would be so surprised that they didn't change anything with that tone you know and maybe they finished it in like 2019 and then we're just figuring out distribution which is you know whatever but so weird to me like if to to look at this and be like yeah I'm okay with that message (laughs) (laughs) and it feels like so much on Netflix is like very niche and like kind of not really as broadly appealing as you would find from the studio system and this feels like their most like very Oscar baity like how can we make this appeal to as many people as possible which like considering the story that it's being told and like you guys are saying like considering the political climate right now it just like doesn't work but I mean I bet you it's gonna work and I bet you a lot of people are gonna watch this and really enjoy it so I mean like it's gonna be an interesting couple of months to see what the reaction is gonna be like to this film because I think it's gonna be pretty pretty positive especially from like Netflix viewers in general yeah I I think if you 
Oh, yeah, because it's on Netflix, I think. Uh, if you, first of all, knew nothing about this trial and then only see this movie and do no other research outside of it, I think, like, that's something to remember, like, as we we're on this podcast, like, we all had, well, we all went to believe in May for one thing, so we are kind of a small subset, but I feel like if, if William and Mary did anything, or if our professors at least taught us anything was to, you know, critical thinking and all that stuff. Um, so I think, yeah, just like from a very surface level, if you don't think about this movie, and if you just stick to the fantasy world, it's, it's great. And <laughs> the ending's great. Right. I mean, still like, the, still, okay, I'm just gonna stick by and say, <laughs> I just like the last three minutes <laughs> in no other context. You're allowed um, to like a movie, Brooke. <laughs> I'm allowed to, but now we've just talked about how shitty it was this entire You're not time. allowed well, to think, I'm thinking of ending things as optimistic, though. That's still, that's still wrong. <laughs> no, I stick by that. I stick by that claim. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. Like, I think if you literally just, yeah. like, end the movie, close out of netflix you're like this is amazing <laughs> you probably sleep great that night yeah <laughs> well brooke let me let me give you this quote from smithsonian magazine who is quoting sorkin <laughs> um okay. and and in defense of you liking the ending so um quoting smithsonian magazine Sorkin makes no claims of hewing exactly to the true history explaining that the movie is meant to be a quote painting rather than a quote, photograph, an impressionistic exploration of what really happened. Um, and I agree that that is what he thinks this movie is, um, is a, not an exact, you know, replica of history. It's, it's, he's not taking a photograph. He, he is sort of painting his own politics and opinions um, or using that, those to paint his own, his own picture of that. Um, and so that, that brings me to like a broader question of any film about history. What is the responsibility of a filmmaker to, to stick to that history versus how much room does a filmmaker have to play with the details? Um, and I don't know if you guys have any takes on, on that question, because I think that's been a question since film has existed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's not even a question that's just, you know, inherent to film. It's like, how True. do you talk about history as a historian? <laughs> or how do you talk about it at all? Because I mean, something generally or whatever, like history is like, you know, written by the winners or whatever, but it's like so much based in like everything. Also like our current perspectives and stuff. I remember when we read the Port Huron statement um, in one of Professor Watkins classes, like, you know, there were a lot of comments about how it could have been even more radical because it was coming from, you know, intellectual white men and they left out a significant portion of the population or ideas that we have um, that might be a little bit different today. And Professor Watkins was like very much adamant about trying to say like, yes, but th these were like radical for that time. And obviously it's gonna be a little bit different, but yeah, as a film, I mean, as long as the intent, I mean, I think there's like a difference between intentions and like what you want the audience to gain from the film. Um, and I don't think it's like, I would hope that people know <laughs> that they are going to watch a film and not watching like a lecture about these actual events. 
but it's unfortunate that like for me if I didn't take a class with Professor Watkins this would be and I had like an American rural like public <laughs> high school education this would be my only encounter with with the trial of the Chicago 7 and like I just mentioned I think the majority of people probably wouldn't right. do further research for that so yeah, that's such a good point balance. yeah yeah, I mean, because like, you know, we, we talked about Green Book earlier, and like things like that in Bohemian Rhapsody that are like so clearly bending the truth. Like for so many people, that's going to be their introduction and that is going to be how they think of these historical figures. And like, it's just hard to imagine that it does these important people justice. Like I can't imagine like, you know, your whole impression of Freddie Mercury's sexuality being painted by like that. <laughs> Mm. And it's 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 frustrating. I, I totally agree with you, Brooke. And also, like, real quick, I guess a little bit off topic, but, uh, you know, the quote that you read from Sorkin, uh, Caleb, I think it's like the painting photograph thing. Like, does that feel like he just watched uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things slash maybe uh, listen to our podcast before he made that quote? That feels like it was directly ripped from that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. He's like, you have to watch this in whatever mood you're in. That's what the film means. <laughs> I like, as someone who loves history and like enjoys historical movies, like I think it's obvious that you have to compress and recontextualize and move things around um, to make big historical events fit into like a two hour package. Like that's fine. I just think sticking true to the spirit of that history and also being aware that you are the entrance for most people to history that people don't know about is something like, as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you have a duty to consider. And so like, if you're whitewashing it, like that should weigh on you because you know that this is popular culture and this will be, you know, the long lasting impression we have of the Chicago 7. And I think it kind of, it, it makes me upset because the ways in which the movie didn't ring true, like the whole random, almost rape of that girl with the American flag. Like that's totally fiction. And it kind of takes some of the steam out of this protest scene. And like, it makes sense because that's not what really happened. And it's not necessarily like true to the spirit of events, which I think pervades the whole movie. So it's just like, I don't know. It's definitely a struggle to portray historical events accurately. And there's no duty to make a documentary with every fictional movie you make. But I think there is a duty to consider the history and like the, the weight of your duty to portray it in a way that at least is honest. Apparently, and I, I haven't fact checked this yet, um, but apparently, because my roommate told me this, so mm -hmm. I haven't, I, I didn't fact check him, but apparently bef when this movie, because this movie has been in development since for like a decade and a half or something. Oh, wow. um, originally Spielberg was going to direct. Yeah. Um, Apparently, early on, uh, when it was like rumored that Sorkin was going to write this script, in an interview, somebody asked him, like, "Oh, like, what drew you, um, or like, what draws you to the '68, um, you know, trial of the Chicago Seven? And he had like no answer, and was like, "I actually, I need, I need to read up on that. I'm not too familiar with what was happening, and like, what." So, it, it's, it really does ring as someone who just sniffed a good story and mm -hmm. and I don't think that's necessarily unethical to to do but it doesn't seem that he did the legwork in terms of like let me read theory let me read like what the Black Panthers were about let me mm -hmm. like really steep myself into these guys ideas 
it just he sort of seemed like he was like oh they were like left they were like liberal and <laughs> and uh yeah the, the, they were a little crazy and then well that's that's as deep as i'm gonna go <laughs> into it um which in a way like really ref- is almost like chillingly reflects how well Nixon and Reagan and those wiped and the FBI and the CIA wiped out like leftist thought and any sort of like rising tide of Marxism in America. Um, in a way it chillingly reflects that because Sorkin clearly has no clue necessarily. I mean, I, I don't know the man personally, but um <laughs> he doesn't really have an interest in engaging with those radical thoughts. So in terms of a historical perspective, uh, I think he, it is almost, almost unethical to, to those ideas, but those ideas don't have like a lot of people who are the flag bearer for them. So we don't even have like a fight back or a, you know, (laughs) He just heard that it was in a courtroom and he was like, I'll do it. (laughs) I feel like there's a difference between like looking at a photograph and making a painting and then like looking at a photograph and cropping it and rotating it and doing like 60 filters and then posting it on your Instagram for your followers to admire. And I think that's (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I feel like really good movies based off historical events, like they feel like the painting, like you feel like you're watching something real and you don't really get taken out of the experience not for me at least i mean it's like you know if our public education history was better and honest and not in many ways american propaganda it wouldn't <laughs> be much of an issue and a do a burden on the filmmakers to do this but it, it, it is because it is oh yeah if we could talk about propaganda real quick and <laughs> the, the thing with the one the one issue or whatever with that ending scene and Schultz's character like standing as like respect for the fallen or whatever is just such a weird turn that I don't understand how we can like respect radical thinking as long as it's rooted in American patriotism you know what I mean like as long as it's rooted in the fact that like they love America so much that we want to see it like be better or whatever it's just such a weird concept to me so like Schultz in doing that isn't even like isn't in any way like being radical or like showing sympathy or whatever he's you know kind of showing sympathy for like a time honored thing of like respect for the dead and respect for the fallen or whatever which is like steeped in american patriotism right especially when it like made him the sort of de facto hero of the resolution of the bobby seal arc of the story and it's like what are they trying to do with that character? I mean, clearly he's trying to be much more sympathetic than any of us took it, which might say a lot more about us than it does about the movie. But at the same time, like, it's frustrating. Like, exactly to your point about propaganda. Like, man, like, it it is, I mean, all movies are going to have a perspective, especially historical dramas like this, and even documentaries. But, you know, it's clearly not what we wanted to see. (laughs) He facetuned the shit out of that photograph. <laughs> <laughs> that bothered me. That I think you make a great point, Brooke, about it has to be rooted in American patriotism because that is like the the I think the most egregious line is the Abby Hoffman quote saying like he believes in these institutions because he just just did not. He did. He wrote a book called "Steal This Book." Yeah. Like he did not believe in capitalism at all, uh, and so that that did ring offensive um and 
I think we are meant to, or we as in the general audience, the general Netflix audience, like you were mentioning earlier, Arjun, would find the prosecutor sympathetic. Like, I think it, it really is like, let's give conservative people someone to latch on to because you know somebody like we because this film believes in the rule of law i think Mm -hmm. i i mean i think that this film uh believes in 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 the institutions it believes that we just need good men in these institutions um and so a a few good (laughs) men oh nice brook um yeah i just there to enjoy this movie i had to turn my brain off to that but i don't think that a lot of people necessarily have to because i think that that view is is not uh, an uncommon one i think a lot of people will watch this and and be moved by um the prosecutor's willingness to not see bobby seal being bound and gagged and and that's something that will be valiant to a lot of people rather than obvious yeah there were just too many like too many subtle mentions of like exceptionalism for this case Mm -hmm. for it to be like applicable to anything like currently going on and like i mentioned before that like they make sure to say time and again that it's this specific judge and to have that end quote thing but not even like this specific judge but to have the main who's the main lawyer man to have him say in all my years of being a lawyer, man, this is the one trial where this has ever happened. And he says that like again and again in different creative ways throughout it, that it just like loses any value for this wanting to be any sort of like beacon of systemic change whatsoever. Um, Mark Rylance's character, like Kunstler, the main lawyer, um, he like the trial was even crazier than in the movie like he called in all these like 60s icons into the trial like Allen Ginsberg came in and like read poems and Judy Collins came in and sang folk songs um just the chaos of it all was even more (laughs) um and like I feel like to have that would be more in the 60s radical spirit which is kind of against the spirit of this movie Mm. um weirdly uh so yeah it should lean more into those tendencies and it wants to lean away from them yeah. so that we can have Schultz be this little <laughs> plug-in for the conservative Oscar viewer who wants to like this but is afraid that it, it speaks against who they are as a person. <laughs> That's really interesting you bring that up because like every time they were talking about how long the trial had been going on I felt like it really like had a warped sense of time and not like it matters too much but like I didn't really feel like this was something that was happening over the course of multiple months. And I so rarely ever say this, but like, I feel like this is honestly something that would have maybe worked better as like a mini series or something like that, where it's like, you even like, I mean, you, I guess are kind of confirming this, but it feels like there's so much you miss out on, even as yeah. a sort of biased historical document, like, you know, we're 150 days in, like, it did not feel like that at all. Mm. No, I mean, that's because they brought in all these witnesses and there was a lot more chaos and like, I think uh, Mark Rylance's lawyer had like 42 counts of contempt by the end. So there's a lot more (laughs) back and forth with the judge. There's a lot more funny witnesses and stuff that they just kind of cut out. Um, Like the whole thing with the robes that they're wearing to mock him, like that was true. But there's Mm. tons more antics like that. I don't (laughs) think the police uniforms underneath were true, but the robes were true. (laughs) Um, So it's, 
it's yeah i kind of agree with you that they were like we're months into this case the seasons are changing look they're going on skating and it's like <laughs> <laughs> we've barely gone over the events of what happened in the trial <laughs> like <laughs> one one qualm i do have with with sorkin's writing um is and then this is something i just wanted to get in before we wrap things up i think he relies on really really canned and easy scriptisms i don't know what the the right term is to to make a point that makes me roll my eyes because we've talked about how clever he is as a dialogue artist and i think he is but in terms of like structural things i'll give a few examples because i don't think i'm being clear (laughs) with myself (laughs) the whole um the maid the maid in um in mr uh lbj's attorney general um who is like one of the few black characters outside of black panthers and all she gets is like i heard you didn't stand and he's like i didn't it was an accident and then that's (laughs) like and we're supposed to be like in that moment be like wow he's a disappointment to all black people like she represents all like everybody who like um who he could offend with like wow and it's stuff like that is like ah, oh, it, yeah. it makes me roll my eyes and there are like plenty of other examples that i could read but i wanted yeah. to get in that criticism before it is very surprising that that one didn't end up on the cutting room floor i mm. i i completely agree and it's like the one we were talking about earlier like with joseph gordon levitt meeting them in the middle of a park like mm. totally unrealistic like tonally inconsistent with the rest of the movie sort of like vignettes like totally feel like the movie would be the same exact thing without make them worse if anything. <laughs> it feels like a student film thing to do, honestly. And I say that as a student who really struggles writing. I'm not a good writer at all when it comes to screenwriting, I don't think. But Aww, I can re- yes, you are, <laughs> Kayla. I'll send you some of my scripts and we'll talk about it. <laughs> okay. Then I'll be like, So I don't I don't wanna come off as holier than thou or that, you know, I can critique Oscar winner screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> but I I don't know they're like it's like things with um maybe Julia can give me some good historical perspective on this but when the whole uh, let the blood be if blood be spilled let it be spilled yeah. across Chicago and the whole all of it is contingent the entire riots are contingent on him saying let if our blood is spilled and that's like everybody's like whoa like he didn't mean to like blah 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 like of course he didn't mean to start any violence because he's a good guy like why that uh like i don't i don't know julia if that's actually literally how things went down i don't Um, i don't think there was any tape of that line there was nothing i i also think part of the reason is like hayden was a non-violent person but he wasn't not he was willing to like go up and face police and like be beaten back and have their blood spill and so when they're kind of like it's crazy he'd say they go face off against police he's like he's not calling like to get out guns and shoot at him he's mm-hmm. calling for them to literally be beaten back to show how unjust this is so yeah it's very mm-hmm. that i felt was very forced too and they have this whole like well if you go on the stand you're gonna have to answer to all these questions and okay the yeah. whole grammatical error thing I thought was hilarious. So, like, I'm not sure if it worked uh, considering the script, but I was cracking up when he was like, that was improper pronoun usage. I figured it out. 
Yeah. <laughs> like saves it. That that's so charming when he's like, you always forget the you know. <laughs> you read my work. <laughs> oh um, yeah. He's like, you read the board. He's like, I've read everything that you've published. <laughs> oh man, really I don't know. I like that part. <laughs> I think it's I think it's good drama. Like I think yeah, that I, it's. It, it seems like he has a formula where, you know, it's just, like, the ultimate example of back and forth, like, fast-paced, like, wittiness or whatever, and then with the, like, the solution of the hour, he wants you to feel like you have, like, also been let in on, like, a mystery that has been solved, so that there's, like, this right. moment of gratification, like, also for the audience, where you're like, ah, yes, like, I understand it now, um, yeah, that, that's so true. And like, in the same way, I think Molly's Game is like a thoroughly enjoyable movie, despite having these same sort of Sorkinisms that don't really work. Like, I think it's much easier to remove the historical context and like cultural context around that. And as opposed to in this, where it's kind of impossible. I mean, like, you know, I think I could probably enjoy this movie a lot more if it was completely fictional. But I guess, unfortunately, that's not the way art works. So sorry, Sorkin. <laughs> <laughs> well it seems that it feels like we're wrapping things up here um did any before we move on to what we've been watching did anybody have any last sort of thoughts or jabs at sorkin or well i have a thought about your poster did you already get a modern romance poster like a month <laughs> after watching it that seems like a very quick turnaround i'm yeah. impressed framed yeah. and everything <laughs> i yeah i'm my wall will slowly get things. I have, I have, a, <laughs> I have a painting that I'm commissioning that's gonna go there. Oh my god! Um, wow. Do we like? We get like a little taste. What's the painting of? Or so do we have to wait? Um, no, no, no. You can. I can let you know. <laughs> so it's actually gonna be a series of paintings. I'm supporting an artist friend of mine who I think her name is Rebecca. Um, I could. God, I, I should plug her Instagram. Um, she's an amazing. <laughs> we can artist. we can drop it in the uh, in the notes, the show okay. notes. I'll, we'll be sure to do that. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to support her as an artist. Um, and I had this idea that like three, let, let me take three scenes from three movies that I love that are related thematic, related thematically and have her do her artistic, artistic impression of that um, because I love her work. And so I'm doing three dancing scenes because dancing brings me joy and I, <laughs> I'm clinging all the joy I can in 2020. Um, and so it's uh, it's one painting. It's like, they're going to be small paintings, but one of them is in Knights of Kabiria, um, where the Fellini film, where Kabiria, who is like a prostitute, um, goes out with her first high-end client. And she's in this swanky club that she's never seen before. And all of the like really rich people are dancing very like slowly and respectfully and like very stiffly. And she's just so overwhelmed with like the riches that she's never been around. She just starts like dancing her ass off and just like going around. And it's like a big moment of joy for me. So I picked that. I picked this like love scene in La Atlante, the French film from the thirties. Um, where uh, like a separated lovers have this like weird quasi dream water dance where they're like in water and dancing together and it's like edited with superimpositions and I think it's gorgeous so that's one painting and then the third is a scene from Come and See 
which is just the most depressing film of all time. And Brooke knows this, <laughs> and Julie knows this. Um, but it is the scene where they are in a, in a respite and they dance to Charleston. Because that, that scene is very moving to me, that these kids can find joy in the worst of circumstances. So that's, that's going to go there. Um, thank you for asking me about my wall. I do have Martin Romance. Um, because I did love it so much while watching it. I've been going on Albert Brooks binge. Um, yeah, let's. This is this is the transition. What have we been watching recently? Um, I watched Broadcast News recently, um, which is just an amazing rom com from 1987. Um, James L. Brooks, writer director, uh, starring William Hurt, Holly Hunter, and Albert Brooks, and uh, yeah, just a joy. Just the some of the best. Speaking of snappy dialogue, some of the best witty, witty dialogue um, trends. It's all about how news in the 80s, they felt like it was going towards entertainment instead of real news. So it's kind of depressing Um, because they're like, that didn't happen. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) They're like the state of the news. Like what will happen in the future if we let news keep going down this? Like and I'm like watching in 2020. It's like a little depressing, but um, good movie. Yeah, I also watched Ice Princess, the Disney Channel original <laughs> film. Yeah, um, good movie. Because my my girlfriend came over last night, and I was in the middle of a psych episode, and she was like, "No, we're watching this instead." And so we did yes. psych episode. <laughs> um, it was the Twin Peaks one because oh, that's a good episode. I hadn't seen it since I'd seen Twin Peaks, so going back, there are so many references. It's I guess crazy. I haven't either. I, I better go rewatch that one. That's a really good point. Yeah. Because I, I like that episode even not having seen Twin Peaks like oh, 10 yeah. years ago when it first came out. Yeah. Love Psych. Good show. <laughs> uh, what, have, what have y'all been watching? I guess I, I can't remember if I brought this up uh, last week or not because I think I watched it like right before we started recording. But um, Orson Welles' F for Fake, which mm. I, I didn't like love it, love it, even though I thought it was really cool when I first watched it. And over the past week, it's just really grown on me. And I've thought a lot about art and um i don't know like i think it would make like a really interesting you know double feature with gus van sant's psycho which is uh, uh basically a shot for shot remake of alfred hitchcock's movie and effort fake deals a lot with you know forgery and art forgery and what true art is and if that even exists and like legacy and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and uh, i think it would be fascinating especially like in an era where specifically with movies like we talk about there is so much uh, ripping off of like old styles and even, you know, shot for shot remakes in a lot of ways and rebranding of old franchises and, you know, reviving these old ideas. And it's something that has really stuck with me over the past week, even though I didn't expect it to. But Orson Welles, pretty, mm. pretty smart guy. <laughs> Speaking of, um, of, of uh, ripping other pieces of work off, did y'all see the, the, I can't believe I didn't mention this in our discussion on trial of the Chicago 7. Did you see the Twitter clip that went viral that is line for line from trial of the Chicago 7 in, in West Wing? In West Wing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Like he yeah. just literally took his own dialogue and is like, yeah, yeah this will just copy paste. <laughs> um, Great joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's just, that's another, I don't even have a comment on that. That's yeah. just like, I guess if, if I were a super successful writer and wrote one of the most revered TV shows of all time, I'd feel the right to <laughs> take some of the best lines yeah. and just copy paste, whatever. Give me money anyway, Netflix. Yeah, honestly, he, do you think it was intentional or do you think he was like, 
this sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I heard this somewhere. Is this on the familiar? Show. I can't no. <laughs> so this close. Me. So, it was so close to the exact wording. Like I was like, did he really just reproduce <laughs> like his brain set in like 2004 or whatever for this now movie? Or <laughs> I couldn't tell. He also wrote it probably way long ago. So I wonder if he had like just written that line and was like, I'll just. You know, mm. borrow it like in 2007 and now it's like 2020 and it feels like <laughs> 10 years ago he's like mm. no one will notice <laughs> um i've been watching a lot of sitcoms for a class i'm in i was watching a lot of seinfeld um which i had never really watched before and only heard reference to from my parents and <laughs> it was pretty funny so that was fun um i also watched about a boy recently um with like Hugh Grant and Nicholas Holt um would recommend I thought it was going to be funny and it was but it was also very sad and <laughs> um one of those movies that I was like this isn't gonna hit me and that like immediately <laughs> hit me and I'm like no. <laughs> okay. how old is that it's like 2000 early 2000s 2002 or something I love Nicholas Holt I didn't even know he was still acting back then I've got I've got to check that out yeah. I think it's his first role. He's like a little little boy. Um, that, that's awesome. But he's he's very good in it. Um, he does a good little boy well. Um, <laughs> and Hugh Grant kind of plays an asshole, which is a good good type for him. Like he can do the charming, charmingly befuddled guy well. He can also do like I'm kind of a dick well. Addington too hive. Yes, I think he is kind of a dick, so it's easy for him to get. <laughs> yes, if he. It, fans of Paddington too, check out about a boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been watching only Halloween films. Um, I thought for some reason all of today that Halloween was next Saturday, which in fact it is not. My mind was blown. Time has been warping. Um, but I was like, oh, this is great news. I can watch more Halloween films up until that moment. Um, so yesterday I watched uh, Nightmare Before Christmas for the first time ever, actually. Um, and that kind of animation uh, truly creeps me out to my core. Um, so it was a little hard for me, but I, for some reason, had had that like opening This Is Halloween song like memorized for years now. Um, but did not realize that the film itself was a musical. So it was another lame is moment for me. <laughs> didn't didn't go and prepared with the musical mindset, but still enjoyed it. Um, and then I watched Halloween Town. Uh, still good. Might not recommend it if you did not watch it as a child, because <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, you know, a little tough to get through with the dialogue at moments. But um, very much enjoyed it. And also, I've been watching exclusively uh, my own video content self-promotion <laughs> here, <laughs> where me and another friend from William & Mary, uh, Maria Schwarz, started, or started again, uh, a late-night comedy show that we write um, and hopefully produce every Friday. Uh, where we just look at the news and then make jokes about it and record ourselves doing so and dress in business attire. So everyone should check that out. It's called The Ketchup. Um, 
Is it on YouTube? Because I follow you on on Instagram, but it's not yeah, YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, our production company name. Oh, yeah. Here's a little inside information. Is a uh, Morton Third Floor, and then we found out that Morton, like apparently most people and buildings at William and Mary, was named after a very racist person. So we Oof. might need to do a complete rebrand. But that's okay. We're <laughs> better early. It's a great in our floor, career. though. Well, no one knows us yet. So yeah, it's that's currently the name of the YouTube channel. That'll probably change very soon. Um, but yeah, all of our episodes are there. Uh, but also on Instagram, we have an Instagram account. And also on the YouTube channel is all of our videos that we've made. We did a short series before this um, that was called the Unofficial Board of Visitors making fun of that i had to actually act in that one not a great actor but i did it <laughs> and all of our 24 speed entries were the ones that like won awards or whatever for that mm. so check those out too if you want <laughs> good plug here's speaking of plugs here is um let's see art from the artist her name is rebecca um the bold stylo is uh is the instagram Let's see. There's a lot of different oh. kinds of art. Like, like her her style is Ooh. like, uh, it's a wild. It it's very impressive in the like how much, um, they can do. So that's the bold style. Teddy. Yes. Yes. Oh, I had a psych class with her. Very she cool. She was too too cool for me to talk to. Um, not that she like gave off like don't talk to me vibes just that I was intimidated personally and it was only like an eight person class and I was like better not better not say anything <laughs> too cool uh fair all right uh I think I think we're wrapping things up um uh this has been the trial of the Chicago seven uh I'm thinking of litigating things I like uh, that yeah <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking a... of writing things. No, that doesn't work as well. No, I like yours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sor the sorkening things. I don't know. Sorkening things. I think. <laughs> I'm thinking of uh, walking and talking. I don't know. <laughs> uh, have a good week, everyone.